the next three weeks, we'll be finishing off the book of Numbers. And we're in the final section of the book. In fact, if you've already made a cursory glance at Numbers chapter 26, you probably noticed it's another census. It's another time where Israel is told to make a list of all the Israelites. In fact, it's from this list in chapter 26 and the one from the opening chapters of the book of Numbers that gives the book its English name, Numbers, because twice the people of Israel are numbered. But there is a difference between that list and this list, and they act as effectively bookends between the two major sections of the book. You see, as we left Israel last week, uh, we left them dwindling and dying off in the older generation. In fact, we came to the final plague um, that takes out the last of their life, and now they're camped, and we're moving into the new generation. And so this is the beginning, and it's effectively a new beginning of Israel getting back on track, okay? And so they've wandered for 40 years. There's been happenings, but no progress in God's promises, no moving forward in God's plan. But here, we draw a line in the sand again. We begin again with a new generation, and so we're given a census. Now, if you're the type that's very interested in data, uh, it is actually somewhat worthwhile to compare this census with the previous one. There are some striking differences that can be chewed upon and considered, um, as well as some very intriguing similarities. I'll touch on a few of them tonight, but it's not very hard to go through and grab the numbers for all 12 tribes, as long as you can name them all, um, uh, and compare. And what you'll find is that some tribes have grown and some have shrunk. But let's go ahead and pick up in verse 1 here. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses, and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who were able to go to war. Now, we've already talked about literarily what this census does, but it's worth recognizing why historically it's time to take a census. And it's for two primary reasons. One was just alluded to there in verse 2, which is, all the men 20 years and above who are able to go to war. Next week we'll see that that begins with the people of Midian, uh, which we were already told God has told them to go after, and then of course they are in it for war as they enter into the promised land and fight for it. And so a census needs to be taken to know what their army looks like. Effectively, this is the enlistment of the new army of Israel. But there's also a second reason. When Israel gets into the land that God has promised them, when they've finished the fighting, then the land has to be divvied up. And as we'll see, the way that they're going to parcel out the land is by the 12 tribes, and it is both according to Lot, meaning effectively that they're going to, with God's help, draw straws, and according to number. In other words, the parcels will be chosen by fate or by God's choosing using the drawing of lots, but the size of those parcels will be corresponding to the size of the individu individual tribes. And so this is an appropriate place to have a census because all of that stuff is just around the corner. Verse 3, 
Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward. As the Lord commanded Moses, the people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were... Okay, and it begins to list them. Now, there's one other difference that's mentioned here or should be mentioned here, which is that in this census, it's not just the tribes and their numbers that are listed, but the tribes and their internal clans, the families that make up the tribes, the names that make up the households. And the reason for that is, uh, once again, because when the land is settled, it's not merely going to be settled by tribe, but divvied up from clan to clan. And it's also worth keeping in mind that as much as this genealogy may seem irrelevant for us, all the way up to the destruction of Israel, okay, uh, with the Babylonian kingdom and the exile period, all the way up to that point, as people would have opened up to this chapter, as they had read this chapter <coughs> throughout Israel as they gathered in worship, these names would have still been associated with their own families. Okay, this is not just um, this is not just a mark of ownership for these individual families, but their families in perpetuity. Okay, and so they would read this list and find themselves in God's promises, and that's worth mentioning. He begins with Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Israel, another name for Jacob, the sons of Reuben, of Hanak, the clan uh, of the Hanakites of Palau, the clan of the Palites, of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the clan of the Carmonites. These are the clans of the Reubenites, and those listed were 43,730. And the sons of Palau, Elab, and the sons of Elab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when the company died, when the fire devoured 250 men. They became a warning, but the sons of Korah did not die. Now, we had this story just a few weeks before Christmas, right? When, uh, when Korah and Dathan and Abiram stood up against Moses and said, we're sick of your leadership and we want to do something different. And God comes to Moses' defense, and he puts this rebellion to death. What I want you to notice is this is the first of a handful of references to things we've already read, to stories we already know. In other words, contained in this census data are warnings. Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, bad examples contained here in the census as lessons, okay? Because the thing is, as we sit here with Israel 2.0, we should be wondering, what are they going to do? Are they going to make the same mistakes that their parents made, or are they going to follow the Lord? Are they going to trust that God can do this, or are they going to complain all of those things should be in mind now, and so there's these reminders of where we've been, and that's the first one. Then it moves on to Simeon, verse 12. The sons of Simeon, according to their clans of Nemuel, uh, the clans of the Nemulites, of Jamin, the clans of the Jamanites, of Jachin, the clan of the Jachinites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites, of Shahal, the clan of the Shalhites. These are the clans of the Simonites, 22,200. 
the sons of Gad, according to their clans of Zephon, the clans of the Zephonites of Haggai, the clans of the Haggites of Shuni, the clans of the Shunites of Ozni, the clans of the Oznites of Eri, the clan of the Erites, of Erod, the clan of the Eridites, of Areli, the clan of the Arelites. These are the clans of the sons of Gad as they were listed 40,500. Now here you're probably noticing the pattern's very simple, right? The family is listed, the, the, the sons, and then the clans underneath those sons are listed, and the title is given. And so we're going to jump around a little bit. We're just going to pick up a couple of uh, things outside the pattern. And the first one we find with Judah in verse 19. The sons of Judah were Er and Onan. Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were. Okay? And so there's this recognition here. Now, technically, Er and, uh, er and Onan... Uh, have two other, they have one other brother, and then an awkward situation. But let me remind you of the story. So these are the sons of Judah. And Er takes a wife, and we're not told what his issue was. The Bible just tells us that he was greatly wicked before the Lord, so God took his life. And so now there's this widow, okay? According to Old Testament practice, a widow who had not yet had a child would take her ex-husband's, her widower husband's brother as a husband, and the first child they had would be raised up in his name, okay, to carry on his line and his lineage. And so Er's younger brother, Onan, takes his wife, Tamar. But although he takes the wife and the uh, the conjugal rights of that marriage, he doesn't allow uh, insemination to happen. He pulls out at the last minute, and it says very, uh, very timidly that he spills his seed on the ground. We read that, and it just reads weird, but here's what's really going on. He has no interest in servicing his brother or his line. He'll take the sex but he has no interest in fulfilling his duty that he owes to his dead brother. Even though his brother is wicked, because of that, God takes his life. Now, you may or may not remember the story, but it gets really awkward and interesting from there. But effectively, she ends up having a kid through Judah himself, a son named Perez. Okay? Now, why are these two listed? They're listed because they're part of the family of Judah and because they're bad examples. But they don't have any lineage, right? Er never had any children. Onan refused to have any children. And so the families come elsewise through Judah directly through Perez. Verse 20, the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were of Shelah, the clans of the Shelanites, of Perez, the clans of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the clans of the Zerahites, and of the sons of Perez were Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites of Hamul, the clans of the Hamalites, and these are the clans of Judah as they were listed, 7,600 and 500. Okay, so it goes through Issachar and gives us the same details, and then it goes through Zebulon and it gives us the details, and then it gets to the sons of Joseph, and notice this in verse 28. The sons of Joseph, according to their clans, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, if you don't remember, Joseph has two sons, and they actually both become equal tribes in the people of Israel. That's why if you try and list all 12 tribes of Israel, you'll technically get 13, because Ephraim and Manasseh are half-tribes, but at the same time, they both get 
equal inheritance, okay? They get the elder brother portion, the blessing, the double portion, and it's split between them, okay? But what I want to draw your attention to is specifically what it says here uh, about the sons of Ephraim. So verse 35, these are the sons of Ephraim according to their clans, Shula the clans of the Shulahites, Beecher the clans of the Beecherites, Tehan uh, the clans of the Tananites, and these are the sons of Shula of Iran, the Aaronites. They are the clans of the sons of Ephraim, and they're listed as 32,500. Okay, so notice that number, and then jump back to verse 34 and look at the clans of Manasseh. These are the clans of Manasseh, and those listed were 52,700. Okay, I just want you to notice the numerical difference there. Okay, Manasseh seems surprisingly large in comparison to equal brother Ephraim. What's interesting is if you go back and read the story, uh, sorry, read the census from the beginning of Numbers, Manasseh has exploded, okay? It's almost doubled in size over this period. The reason that's striking is because if you go back to Genesis 49, that's exactly what uh, Jacob says will happen to his sons Manasseh and Ephraim, that they will be like a fruitful vine and will bear lots of fruit. And we can see this. In fact, it's going to get to the point where later prophets will refer to the ten tribes of Israel, in other words, anyone who's not Judah and Benjamin, as just plain Ephraim, okay? Because there's so many Ephraimites. But we can already see that on the move. The, the winner for greatest population increase in the census goes to Manasseh, okay? So after that, uh, we have the sons of uh, Benjamin, uh, 45,600, and then the sons of Dan, 64,400, the sons of Asher, 53,400, the sons of Naphtali, 45,400, and that brings up the total. Now, there's one other thing I wanted to, mit or wanted to mention that I missed along the way. Let me find it. Right. We looked at the beginning, so I forgot. The other number that's really interesting is the Simeonites, who have almost been cut in half. Okay. They've lost tens of thousands of people in this transition from one generation to another. Okay. They're the big losers in that. In fact, to the degree, we'll watch as this trend continues, and they end up not inheriting their own land, but just kind of being spread through the land of Judah because they're on the decrease, okay? So those are the two outliers for what goes on. Most of the other tribes just shift by a few thousand in one direction or another. There's nothing really significant or noticeable, noticeable about it. It is worth mentioning that both Simeon and Reuben are heavily involved in that plague that we mentioned earlier. But when we get to the final number, what do we find? This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. Now, if you went and looked at the number from the earlier census, it's 603,000 and some change, okay? And so the actual population shift in Israel is a little over or a little under 1%. It's not very significant, okay? And this should speak to us of God's faithfulness, okay? Because he goes in with this people, and despite the fact that these people rebel, he has promises, Promises that go all the way back to Abraham that his children are going to grow and be fruitful and grow in number. And here, if you were in the tribes of Israel, you know the history of your parents. You've read the first chapters of Numbers, even though these last chapters haven't been written yet. 
you know the numbers and you hear this, the first thing you're going to think is, God has been faithful, right? Despite the fact that there's been a delay, there hasn't been a substantial decrease. God has been faithful. Verse 52. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Among these, the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. And to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. Okay, and so at the beginning it mentions the military. At the end it mentions the division of the land, just like I mentioned. That's the purpose of these numbers. Now, here's one little interesting fact. When you include... um, Sorry, this is the hardest name to say. The Zelophehadites, okay, who are actually women and not men. They're daughters, uh, daughters of a man who had no sons, and they'll come up in just a minute. They're on the list. That's unique about their place in the list. All the other families are named for the men in the family, but there is these daughters of, once again, Zelophehadad, okay? Uh, and they make the list. They're back there in chapter 26. We're going to go into chapter 27 and talk about them, but before we do, if you take all the families, one by one, that we've listed, including those daughters, and then you add all the families of the Levites, which we're about to read, you get 70 individual clans or families. Now, why is that interesting? It's interesting because when you go back to Genesis chapter 50, it gives us the list of all of the descendants of Jacob who enter into the land. Do you know how many there are? 70 individuals, okay? And so here, once again, we have this intentionally designed earmark of God's faithfulness. What was one man and a barren wife became, through a son and then a grandson, 12 sons who became 70 people who have now become 70 clans, okay? And this number 70 is so significant that even when it gets to the prophecies and it starts to move beyond Israel and talk about the nations, in other words, the world in its entirety, do you know how those nations are usually numbered in the Bible? As 70, okay? And so all I'm pointing to here is there's this progression in God's plan from the individual, from Abraham, to the universal. And we're seeing it measure by measure, in, in a pattern even, playing out. It's very interesting. But what we're told here is that when the land is divided, it's going to be proportionate to the size of the tribes, okay? But it's still going to be divided by lot, okay? In other words, God is going to divinely help them choose what area of land is for what tribe, okay? Verse 57, this was the list of the Levites according to their clans. Now, why is this list separate? Okay, it's for two reasons. The same two reasons we've been talking about the census existing for. First off, they don't have to serve in the military. They're excused from that, okay? And so they aren't enlisted, so they're not counted. But second, they have no land to inherit, okay? Now, most likely, they're still numbered here because what they're going to get instead is 48 individual cities scattered across the other 12 tribes, okay? They'll live in the midst of the people. Their job is not only to serve at the temple on rotation or the tabernacle, but also to instruct all 
12 tribes of Israel in the law, okay? And so they're scattered throughout the land, but they don't actually get an inheritance in the land. God reminds them over and over again that God is their inheritance. And so they're kept separate here, but nonetheless, their families are listed. Verse 57, this was the list of the Levites according to their clans, of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites, of Koath, the clan of the Koathites, of Merai, the clan of the Merites. These are the clans of Levi, the clans of the Libanites, the Hebronites, the Malonites, the clans of the Mushites, the clans of the Korahites. And Korhath was the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochbed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. She bore Amram and Aaron and Moses and Miriam, their sister. Okay, all major players in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay, and verse 60, Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithmar, but we get a warning again. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Okay, and so even in the Levites, there's a reminder, there's a warning of the day the tabernacle opened. And because of over-exhilaration and possibly some alcohol, Aaron's two oldest sons offer unapproved fire in the tabernacle. And so they're judged for that. And here we get their numbers. And those listed were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward. Another difference, whereas it was just 20 and up, because they were building an army in the census. Here, all the males are counted because they'll all serve in the priesthood. Okay, so 23,000, for they were not listed among the people of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. And then we get the summary in verse 63. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephnah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And of course, we could add Moses to that list too, although he won't enter into the land. And so even as it finishes, we see the census serves one more purpose here. And that's to remind us of God's justice. You see, this generation that's not represented in this census had been at this same spot, had looked across the Jordan at this same land and said, we will not enter into it, and then complained, God, our children are not safe because of your plans. And complained, we would rather die in the wilderness. And effectively, God in his judgment says, so be it. So be it, you will die in the wilderness, but I will bring your children, the ones you were so concerned about, I will bring them into the land. And so as they take this census, they confirm that not a single person who fell under that judgment is still alive, except for the minority report spies, Joshua and Caleb and then Moses, who once again will not enter into the land. But Aaron has died, Miriam has died, right? All the leadership has turned over at this point. And so here we get the new setting. The table is laid. And notice where it begins in chapter 27. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. 
Okay, so here are these women, and they come forward. They're in Manasseh's line, and they have a question. Now, their question is given uh, after their names. The name of his daughters were Mela, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tisra. And they stood before Moses and Eleazar the priest, and before the chiefs of all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. Okay, now that is actually true of everybody, right? If there's a crowd gathered, they go, yeah, mine too, what's your point? But they continue. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. And so they tell us three things here. He wasn't part of Korah's rebellion. Now, why is that significant? As we're going to see in just a second, they want to talk about what happens with their father's inheritance, okay? But we find in the Bible that there are particular people whose inheritance is removed because of their actions. And it's implied here that that's what happens to the leaders in Korah's rebellion, that their families have no inheritance in Israel because of that behavior. Now, it's not actually ever stated, but both their reference to try and clear their father's name and say, he died for his sin, what sin? Refusing it to enter into the promised land. He died for that sin, but he was not part of the rebellion. Okay? But there's another reason why we think that's probably what the reference is here, and that goes all the way in, forward into Israel's history, where uh, a particular king wants a particular piece of land and is so sad that it belongs to someone else, he's just laying in his bed and crying about it. And so his wife comes up with this plot. Her name's Jezebel. She comes up with this plot and she goes, look, let's just accuse him of blasphemy and take it. Right? Where does she get that idea from? This same principle. There are certain things that remove you from the inheritance. So they clear their father's name and say, he is not in that category. And then they tell us one more thing. Also, he never had any sons. And so, that's what they continue, verse 4. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Okay. When we look at Israel as a society, they, were, uh, they functioned with a patricentricity. Pater meaning father. Their father was at the focus, and so it was patrilineal, meaning that the genealogy, as we just read, was traced through the male line. It was patrilocal, meaning that when you took a wife, you brought her into your father's house. And it was also patriarchal, meaning that the father was the head of the broader household. He was the patriarch, okay? And so the second thing you need to remember to understand what's going on here is that the land was not going to be owned by Israel. They were to be tenants of the land, and it was divvied up family by family, and that land was theirs in perpetuity. In fact, imagine that they got in such a debt financially that the only way they could get out of it was to sell the land. Every 50 years, that land would be restored to them so that their family line would continue to have the land. Okay. If you don't understand how the land in, in Israel works, you're going to read this and you're just going to go, what's the big deal? Why can't the women receive the land? It's because it's not just about them. It's about the lineage. It's about the tribes being maintained intact. In fact, 
even though they're going to get answers here, another question is going to come up very quickly, and we'll deal with it at the end of the book of Numbers. But effectively, they say here, our father, his family, this guy, Zelophehad, he has an inheritance coming to him, but there's no one to inherit it. There's a promise that our clan is going to lose because there's no one to receive it. And so they bring this forward and they say, he didn't have a son, why should that remove his name and his heritage from the land? And then they continue, give to us possession among our father's brothers. Okay. And so, verse 5, Moses brought the case before the Lord. Now, this is one of a couple of times in the book of Numbers where a rule has been given, a law has been given, an expectation has been made, and somebody's raised their head and go, goes, wait, what about my situation? So you may remember back in Numbers 9, verse 6. It's right after another judgment of God, so there's many dead, and they're about to celebrate Passover. Okay. Now, they've learned the Levitical priesthood rules. They know they're not allowed to do certain things when they've been exposed to the dead. They also know that all Israelite men over the age of 13 are required to keep Passover. So they're kind of stuck, and they come and they go, wait a minute, so if we've recently been exposed to a dead body, here's the hypothetical for you. Imagine it's a week before Passover in the spring, and your uncle dies in your house. Can you celebrate it or not? That's the question. Are we excluded from Passover because of this? And we see the same behavior. Moses goes to inquire of the Lord and is given further direction. In other words, a precedent is made. And that's why it's recorded for us here in this way. And so, verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, you'll transfer his inheritance to his daughter. As I mentioned, it's a precedent. Okay, not just a special case, but this would be true in any case where a man died without having sons. In fact, it lays out a whole lineage of inheritance here. And so it continues in verse 9, If he has no daughter, then you'll give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you'll give his inheritance to his father's brothers. In other words, uh, he, aunts and uncles in this case. Uh, and if his father has no brothers, then you'll give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it, and it shall be to the people of Israel a statute and a rule, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, one of the advantages of the way the land worked in Israel was that it avoided what we experience in capitalism all the time, which is property shifting heavily into the hands of the few. Imagine one tribe has very good years and is doing really well, and because of a localized famine in another tribe, the entire tribe has to sell off their land. And so now, one tribe has two parts of the land, and the other is effectively homeless. They're, that is avoided by Israel. This whole idea of the year of Jubilee maintains an equality. It, it stops systemic poverty. And so this is an essential aspect of that for it to continue. What happens when a man, man's line ends? The land isn't just up for grab. It's, it doesn't go up on the auction block. It stays in the family. 
In fact, we'll see in chapter 36 that another question comes up. Wait a minute. So what if these women marry outside of the family? Then the land, doesn't it get handed off to the wrong sons, effectively, moving away from the family line? So there's still more to deal with. But here we get the explanation that the inheritance should go to the daughters so, that the, so it can be passed on. Now, there's another thing that needs to be dealt with before we can move the story forward, and that's the fact that currently Moses is still leading things, but by the time they cross the Jordan, he will not be. God has promised them, promised him that he will not enter the land, and so we need a successor to Moses. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I've given to the people of Israel. When you've seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Now, when we read those verses, it sounds like now is the time for Moses to die. But this isn't actually going to happen until the very end of Deuteronomy. Okay? But God lets him know this is going to happen next in your life. This is the next major thing. And he graciously allows him to get on a high enough mountain to look over the land of Israel and see it for himself. But he will not enter into it. And we're given the reason, verse 14, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Mirabah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Now, Moses has effectively accepted his fate. He's going to have a conversation here, but his concern is not, can't I just have one more chance it's not, don't you think you're being really harsh? It's not, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot and I think you should reconsider. It's none of that. But he does have a concern and he voices it here. Verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. His concern is, if I'm gone, who's going to lead these people? And I love that because it shows how much of a leader Moses was. He's lost his golden parachute. He's lost his benefit package. And he's still concerned about the people. Okay? He is a true leader of Israel. He loves these people. Despite their poor treatment of him on occasion, despite the fact that he sometimes gets it wrong, his greatest concern right now is, but what about them? Now, the second thing I want you to notice here is how he refers to God here. He says in verse 16, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh. That phrase, the God of the spirits of all flesh, only occurs in two places, and both of them are in the book of Numbers. During the last plague, when God basically says, I'm going to devour this whole area, everybody else better get away, Moses speaks and he says, but aren't you the Lord, the God of the spirit of all flesh, okay? He's pointing to what the Bible says all the way back in Genesis when it talks about the creation of man, right? So when we look at the creation of animals and plants, God says, and he made them out of the ground, but there's something unique about the creation of Adam, right? He forms them out of the ground and then he breathes life into him. In the Psalms, it tells us that our very breath is in the hands of God. Every breath we take okay, is in God's hand. It's determined by him. It's by his providence, providence that we breathe every breath. And so when he refers to God here as the God of the spirits of all flesh, 
He's talking about the God who determines when we live and when we die. That's why he brings it up in the plague. He says, look, you have the ability to just stop their breaths. There doesn't need to be any collateral damage in God's justice. That's the point back, uh, back in the plague. But here, here the point is, you're totally capable of keeping me around long enough for there to be a successor. That's the idea here. He's recognizing the fact that there is nothing unknown or unplanned or surprising about his death date. That's what he means here when he says the God of the spirits of all flesh. You see, one of the things we need to keep in mind is despite Moses' rebellious act, despite his disqualification, God is not going, oh man, now what am I going to do? Moses says that up front. Okay? He's not come up with an idea that God hasn't thought of. But he does express his heart in prayer. And notice the type of leader he prays for. What does he want for the people? Verse 17. A man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. Now, most likely in verse 17, go out before them and come in before them, that's militaristic. He wants somebody who's going to lead them into battle. But overall, there also seems to be a shepherd image. It's made explicit at the end of this. But even go out before them and come in before them should remind you of the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 when he's talking about him as himself as the good shepherd. And he says, and I will lead them out and bring them in. Okay, that's what a shepherd does. You have a place where you keep the sheep and you take them out into the pastures to feed and to nourish themselves and then you bring them back to the safety of where you store them, right? He wants somebody who's really going to take care of them, okay? And then he says, why does he want this? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd, his heart here is that there would be somebody who cares, somebody who protects them, somebody who compassionately leads them, like a shepherd would his sheep. This is what we find in Jesus. There's an occasion on Jesus' ministry where John the Baptist has just died. And remember two things about John the Baptist, okay? One is he's a direct relative of Jesus, right? Mary's sister, Elizabeth, her son is John the Baptist, okay? So they're cousins. Second, John knows who Jesus is in a significantly unique way. Like the disciples are trying to figure it out as they go along, but John's whole purpose in life was to point to the Messiah. He knows who Jesus is. There's a camaraderie there. There's an understanding, and he dies. He's beheaded by Herod. And the disciples return, and Jesus goes, we need to get away. We need to go out into the wilderness. We need to recharge. And so they're on their way out there and the crowds see Jesus leaving the city and they follow him. And it would have been totally appropriate, at least I hope so, because I've done things like this, for him to go, hey, listen, I just need a couple of days and then I'm all yours. But he doesn't. It says that he looked out on the crowds and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them, so he taught them. And that's what leads to the feeding of the 5,000 that happens in the wilderness. But that was Jesus' heart for people. He longed for them to have leaders, or more importantly, he longed for them not to be caught without somebody who cared and provided for them. 
Moses reflects that same heart here. He continues in his request and he says, uh, um, verse 18, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation and you shall commission him in their sight. Okay, and so he names him here. He says, Joshua is going to be your successor. He's the man you're asking for. Now, Moses wanted a guy um, uh, who would be just like him, but Joshua's role is a little bit different. So notice, for example, in verse 20, you shall invest him with some of your authority that the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Now, the idea there is right now, present tense. Okay? He's not just supposed to say, when I die, Joshua takes over. He starts handing off some of the responsibility now. That's what it means to give him some of your authority. Give him some of your responsibilities. That's just good leadership, okay? Something I talk about with older pastors on occasion is who's going to preach your funeral, right? Because there's this tendency not to be as thoughtful as Moses is. And Moses has the advantage of God saying, Moses, you're going to die. Prepare your house, right? We don't all have that advantage, but sometimes we lack the foresight to think beyond our own death in things that we truly, like Moses, deeply care about. And so the way this happens is not just, ah, God will take care of it after I die, but an intentional handoff, a, a tipping of the scales, if you will, an exchanging of uh, authority, okay? Now, God's going to finish this process very clearly. If you want to know when Israel finally goes, oh, Joshua is God's chosen, it's when they cross the River, of the river Jordan, okay? It's, it's kind of last minute, but it's, it's a little bit after the death of Moses. But it begins here as Moses intentionally lays his hand on him before the congregation, identifying him as the one taking over, gives him responsibility and trains him in his role. But here's the difference, verse 21. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And so here's the difference. Moses, remember? Remember when God was defending Moses? He says, listen, to prophets, I speak in dreams and I speak in visions. But with Moses, I speak face to face. That was a unique aspect of Moses. He could walk right into the tent of meeting and talk to God. That's what he wants for Israel, is a leader like himself. But that's not what he gets in Joshua. Joshua has to inquire through the priest, through the Urim and the Thummim, which all we know about these two things is that there's two of them. Their names are Urim and Thummim, and that the priest, the high priest, kept them in his breastplate pocket and that they were used to discern the Lord's will. That's all we know. Sometimes people suggest maybe it was a black stone and a white stone, and you would draw one out as a yes or a no, but a lot of times when David inquires of the Lord later, he gets answers that are clearly not yes or no. Okay? Some actually believe because of the relationship between the words Urim and Thummim and the Hebrew alphabet, that this was actually the A to Z, and so it was an entire scrabble board of letters, and they would be laid out and that would spell out what was said. Now, that sounds ridiculous in English. You can try it. You've probably tried it with your alphabet serial when you were a kid. It doesn't work very well. But you have to remember in Hebrew, the average word is only three letters. Okay? And the vowels are implied by the context. It's just consonants. And so it's actually a little bit easier to just create 
random words uh, in this way, but, but we're not told what they are. And I actually think there's a significant reason for that, okay? Because the Urim and the Thummim were for Israel. And if we knew what they were like, how many of us would recreate it, you know, in our home lab and use it to determine God's will? That's not the point, okay? It's something he did for Israel, and God, the same God, desires to lead us, but it's not about the tools, okay? But nonetheless, Moses was unique in the history of Israel as a leader. Every leader after him is different. He longs for a leader like himself, a shepherd for the sheep. And Joshua, he kind of is everything Moses ever dreamed of, almost. Almost. And this is a pattern we see often in the Old Testament. I'll give you another example. God comes to David and he says, David, I know you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build your house. And he says, and your son is going to reign on the throne forever. And you meet Solomon and you're like, he's a pretty good fit. Almost. Almost. We even see it in one other place, and I don't want to get too deeply into it, but there's this occasion in the book of Daniel where he's looking forward and he's speaking specifically of this coming one who we know historically as Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? This leader who's going to just wreak havoc on Israel in the period between the Testaments, between the Old and New Testament, okay? Um, this is part of the timeline where the Jews get the, the history of Hanukkah. That's what we're talking about. And so you read in the book of Daniel and you're like, okay, check, check, check. This is all Antiochus. And then it's like the shoes are just a size too big, almost. There's this pattern in the Bible where it sets us up with expectation and then the first fulfillment of it falls short. And effectively what it's doing is it's preparing us to look forward. We see this with, with uh, Moses uh, in another particular way. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses speaking to Israel says, and God will raise up for you another prophet like me. And if you're familiar with the history of Israel, it's full of another prophet, okay? We have Elijah, we have Isaiah, we have Jeremiah. We have all of these prophets, but none of them are a prophet like Moses. Remember that distinction I gave you from here in the book of Numbers? They see the word of the Lord. They have visions and dreams, but Moses spoke face to face. And so even the Jews themselves understood this. And in the days of Jesus, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? One of the guesses that people have is the prophet. What one? The one that Moses spoke of. Okay. And so here we have the successor to Moses. And Joshua is in one sense the successor, but not the fullness of it. Even here, there's a looking forward, there's a longing uh, that Joshua is going to point to but not fulfill. It's almost like an, a historical echo waiting for the reality, the true voice to come. And the Old Testament is full of this. But here's Joshua, he's going to need the priesthood, he's going to need the Urim and the Thummim, and verse 22, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hand on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Now, there's actually quite a lot of things to learn about this transition with Joshua, but we're going to have quite a few more opportunities to talk about it, so we're going to move on. Chapter 28, 
The next two chapters, chapter 28 and 29, are about the sacrifices. It's amazing how often in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we have repetition, okay? So we have genealogies, and you're like, another genealogy? We have censuses, and you're like, another census? And then we have sacrifices, and you're like, we're going to go through this again? In fact, here in 28 and 29, we're going to walk through the seven festivals that make up Israel's history, but this list, as always, is different. Whereas some of the other festivals focused on the timeline of events, this focuses on the enumeration of particular sacrifices. And as we'll see, these sacrifices compound. So for example, there is not just a Sabbath sacrifice, but a new moon sacrifice, and the daily sacrifice, and then there is the holy first day of the year, the new year sacrifice. All of those on a particular day of the year all get played out, okay? They compound, okay? And so here it's laid out to make clear exactly what's supposed to happen on any given day in the calendar. And there's a second difference between this and some of the other lists. The other lists have focused on Israel's individual personal worship. The sacrifices that any given Israelite would bring over the course of his life. These chapters are about the national sacrifices, the ones that they made as a nation for the whole nation. In other words, what we read in chapters 28 and 29 is Israel's baseline worship of God. Before there's any individual or particular involvement, before anyone brings an, a sacrifice for their personal sin or a f fellowship offering for their personal worship of God, before any of that is done, this is the baseline of Israel's year. And it's fascinating here that the year is told in dead animals. There is probably nothing that you can define at the center of Israel's worship better than sacrifice. It's the heart of it. It's the focal point. It's a constant reminder. And as we look at this chapter, I want you to just think um, numerically what we're talking about. And then the other thing that's about, uh, that I want to point out about this chapter before we get into it, both of these chapters, 28 and 29, is that there's a pattern here or a, a structure. And the structure is that it begins with the most regular and moves to the least regular. So it starts with the daily, then the weekly, then the monthly, then the annually. Okay, that's the way that it's organized. So with that being said, pick up in chapter 28, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food, for my food offering, my pleasing aroma, you should be careful to offer me at its appointed time. Does the English there seem awkward to you? Right? Let me read it again. See if this is the way that you would say this sentence. My offering, my food, for my food offering, my pleasing aroma, you should be careful to offer for me at its appointed time. Do you hear the emphasis there? It's grammatically awkward, it's so emphasized. Okay. Worship here is primarily laid out and for the sake of the God who laid it out. Okay. This is about my desires, about my will, about my plan. Okay. And so this is laid out, and here's how you do it at their appointed times, verse 3. You shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, 
a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Okay? And so daily, there was to be a morning and evening lamb sacrifice. Every morning, every evening, the same sacrifice, both times a lamb. And so remember here, what did I say that sacrifices are? They're the heart of Israel's worship. What I want us to notice applicable to us tonight is that there's a daily rhythm to this worship. Okay? As a nation, every day, morning and evening, there's an aspect of their relationship with God. Now, we're going to get to the holidays and the high holy days, but you could never cri criticize Israel for being Christmas and Easter worshipers. You know what I mean? Who it's like, well, it's, it's Christmas, so we better go to church, or so we'll blow the dust off the Bible and open it up, right? There's a daily aspect. In fact, there's a twice-daily aspect. Their day begins with worship, and it ends with worship. This is why it's been so common throughout Christian history to try and develop a daily devotional habit that reflects this same pattern, to begin your day with God and to end your day with God. That's why Spurgeon's devotional is called what? Morning and evening, okay? And so we see this daily rhythm, and we see here it's not just a lamb, but we also see that it involves um, grain and wine. And so uh, specifically here, Verse 5, also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, a grain offering mixed with a quarter hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And so notice what these offerings were. If we go back to Leviticus 1 through 7, we find there's five major offerings that Israel offers all the time. The burnt offering is the first one, the one that's listed in Leviticus chapter 1. And what it seems to represent and point to is dedication. Unlike the other four offerings, the burnt offering or the whole offering is laid on the altar and completely consumed. No portion of it is laid aside or left over or eaten. The whole thing is consumed. And so imagine you're an Israelite and you walk in and you offer a burnt offering. You lay your hand on the animal you slit its throat, and then the animal goes onto the altar, okay? It speaks of dedication, offering your whole life to the Lord. But Israel as a nation, this was to be their opening thought to the day, and their surrendering every evening. That was the rhythm, a burnt offering, morning and evening, okay? Verse 7, um, so it includes the grain and the food, and then also its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen of each, for each lamb. In the holy place, you'll pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Like the grain offering of the morning and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now this gives me a chance to point out one other thing. It says specifically here that the final offering is to be at twilight. Now in practice, the Jews actually read this word that we translate twilight a little bit differently. <coughs> and so they actually did it at what in the New Testament is called the ninth hour. Okay. Now here's why that's significant. Because when you take the morning offering in practice of the Jews and the evening offering in practice of the Jews, Jesus is put on the cross during the morning and he dies during the evening. There's this emphasis in times. Have you ever noticed it when you read the Gospels? And at the ninth hour, Jesus breathed his last and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Why does it tell us the time on the clock? Do we really think somebody was sitting there with a stopwatch going, okay, what's the time of death? No, the emphasis is, look, there's a direct correlation between the sacrifices going on in the temple and the sacrifice going on on Golgotha. Okay. And so here there's this rhythm set up and the way that it was practiced, the gospel authors get the point. That's why Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So it all points to him. So that's daily, but there's also a weekly rhythm. And this shouldn't surprise you because another major facet of Israel's worship is the Sabbath, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the things that's to set them apart from other people, that they honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so the Sabbath offering is on top of the daily offering. In other words, six days of daily offerings, and then on the seventh day, there's also this offering we read about in verse 9. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour of grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering every Sabbath beside the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. On top of that. In other words, the Sabbath is double. Every seventh day, they offer twice as much nationally in sacrifice. Okay. Now, once again, I think it's worth pointing out here that Israel doesn't merely have a daily rhythm, but a weekly rhythm. So every Sabbath is a day that's set aside for rest and for worship. Okay? And it's uniquely worshipful. Every day is a day to worship the Lord, but the Sabbath is a day to especially worship the Lord. And this is another thing that Christians have rightly recognized in practice, and it's why we gather together on Sundays and take one day in worship. We take the precedent that's given to Israel. Now, they gathered on Saturdays. That would be the Sabbath from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. We gather on Sundays. And the reason we do so is because the early church uh, observed this practice in the New Testament church. And so if you read in the New Testament and you look for the occasions when the church gathers, whether it's in Ephesus or in Jerusalem, we find them consistently gathering on Sunday. Why? Because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? But the pattern of weekly gathering together for weekly worship, the pattern of setting aside one day of the seven to uniquely or especially worship God is maintained in the early church. Then it moves on to the monthly. At the beginning of your months, you shall offer, verse 11, a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish, also three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for one ram and a tenth of a fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And so we see here that the monthly offering is even bigger. It's quite a bit more than double the Sabbath. And so not only does it include bulls, but look, when we just look at the, um, at the lambs here, on this day, it's seven male lambs plus a ram and two bulls. And this was done every month on the lunar calendar, okay, as a new, mo- new month began. And this is one I've been reflecting on a lot, specifically because I don't know what monthly rhythms we have as a culture. If you've noticed, at least I have, it's clear that the government has tried to institute at least one national holiday a month, 
right? There's, a, there's an organizational system to our holidays. And so we don't, we don't find them all packed into June, right? They're consistently scattered across the year. That seems intentional, even economical, okay? But what would a monthly worship practice look like for us just as, as those who worship Jesus? I'm not really sure, except there is a significance in the fact um, of the way that a month works. Even in our own lives, we look forward to February. And then when we're there, we look forward to March, right? We really do mark our year monthly, even though we run it on a solar calendar instead of a lunar one. Um, but, but we're seeing here, basically, if you can define a rhythm of life, worship is incorporated into that rhythm for Israel, okay? In fact, by the time the Jews in Jesus's day get there, there's a daily rhythm of prayer that's effectively multiple times a day. There are hourly times of prayer, right? There's these things that make up life. And I'm hammering it so much because I think we're prone to, to an unscheduled worship. We think that's somehow more spontaneous or spiritual, uh, or we say things like, I worship Jesus all the time. But if we did, I think it'd look like this. It looked like rhythms. It looked like habits. And so then, after the monthly offerings, um, it adds in verse 14 the drink offering here. It'll be half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen of a ram, and a quarter of a hen of lamb. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And so monthly, not only would they have this big burnt offering, but they would also throw in there a trespass offering, a sin offering. And then we move on to the calendar of the year. Okay. Now, if you're interested, not only are the sacrifices adding up, but the occasions of worship are adding up, and we'll come back to that. But we're effectively going to walk through the seven major holidays of Israel's history in the monthly order, and that begins, of course, with Passover, verse 16. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover, and on the 15th day of the month is a feast. Seven days you shall, uh, shall unleavened bread be eaten, on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, see that they're without blemish. Also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull, two-tenths for a ram, a tenth you'll offer for each of the seven lambs. And so, just like the uh, monthly rhythm, so also this holy convocation that's incorporated with Passover and unleavened bread. Now, uh, so that means that in the first month, they do this on the first day, and then they do it again on the 15th day, okay? Things are starting to add up. Uh, verse 22, also one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you, you shall offer these beside the burnt offering in the morning, which is a regular burnt offering. In the same way, you shall offer daily for seven days the food of a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered beside the regular burnt offering in its drink offering. And on the seventh day, you'll have a holy convocation. You'll not do any ordinary work. So during the day of unleavened bread, along with the morning and evening, there's added grain offerings. Okay? 
this is pretty complex stuff. There's a lot going on. And one of the things I think we have to recognize when we look at the sacrificial system of Israel is even if the details are significant to God, it's sometimes hard to parse that. Why this many number on this day and why that many number on another day? Sometimes there's things we can see. Most of the time there's not. But there's an intentionality that's required to keep it. That's for sure, right? Um, None of us are going to walk away tonight ready for the pop quiz on Monday, right? Um, And so it moves on to the next festival, uh, the Feast of Weeks. On the day of the first fruits, when you offer a grain offering of new grain to the Lord on your Feast of Weeks, okay? So when does this happen? This happens 50 days after Passover, which is why we often call it Pentecost. Penta meaning 50, okay? And so if you're lining these things up with Jesus' life, Passover is when he dies, and then he's raised, and then he ascends. Pentecost is the day when the Holy Spirit is given to the church 50 days later as Israel regathers in Jerusalem for another festival. But here we find um, that during this one, there's grain offerings and new grain to the Lord at your Feast of Weeks. You'll have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a burnt offering, verse 27, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, also the grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each seven lambs, with one male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall offer them and their drink offering. See that they are without blemish. As we move into chapter 29, we continue the year uh, with the uh, seventh month of the year. Now, the, uh, so Israel's holidays go the 14th of the first month, and then 50 days later, which brings you to the third month, and then moves forward to the seventh month, and we have three of the seven, all occurring in the seventh month, okay? And so there is really a central month of worship in Israel's calendar. It's the seventh month. And that begins with the Feast of Trumpets, verse 1 of 29. On the first day of the seventh month, you'll have a holy convocation. You'll not do any ordinary work. It's a day for you to blow the trumpets, and you shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish. So we're seeing actually a pattern here with the major holidays. It's the same count as a Sabbath, but it's not a Sabbath. It's a holy convocation, okay? It's another day on the calendar, but the numbers, they're same. Verse three, also the grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and a tenth for each of the seven lambs with one male goat for sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering of the new moon, and it's a grain offering, and the regular burnt offering, and it's grain offering, and their drink offering according to the rule for them for a pleasing aroma, food offering of the Lord. Is this starting to remind you of a particular Christmas song? Do you see how it's combining like the 12 days of Christmas song? Right? And so every one, it's like, oh, and this is on top of the daily, and it's on top of the Sabbath, and it's on top of the new moon, right? It's just growing and growing and growing. It seems to me that there's an intention in this, and we'll, we'll hold that tension of that intention a little bit longer. Now we move on to the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement is the defining day in Israel's year. It's the most important day, and it's also unique because it's the only fast in a handful of feasts. 
Okay, all the other days are days of celebration, but the Day of Atonement is the only day on the calendar where Israel as a nation is called to fast. Okay, in fact, by Jesus' day, it's usually just called the fast because it's, it's the only one required on the calendar. This is the day when through the behavior of the high priest, sacrifices were offered that dealt, dealt with the sins of the whole nation. Okay, so it's an important day on the calendar and it happens on the 10th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. So just a side note, first seven days of the seventh month are a festival. Three days later, the day of atonement. Okay, this is a full calendar in the seventh month. So it says here, it's a holy convocation and you will afflict yourselves. That's what makes it unique. You'll do no work, but you'll offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, see that they're without blemish, and their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering besides the sin offering of atonement. Okay, just so there's no confusion there. And the regular burnt offering and its grain offerings and the drink offerings. And then the last festival we have in the seventh month is known as the Feast of Booths. Okay? It's called this because of the way it's celebrated. Instead of staying in their houses, they would build little structures out of palm branches uh, and other, other trees uh, on their roofs or outside and they would live under the stars. In fact, they're specifically told to build it so that you can see through the thatching of the roof and see the stars. And it's to remind them of the period of history that we're reading about now in the book of Numbers, their wilderness wandering. They're to look back on what God has done and how God provided for them. And so when this happens, how do the sacrifices play out? Verse 12, on the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. Where does that fit? Right after the day of atonement. Okay, so let's look at the calendar again. Seven days for the Feast of, Tem uh, of Trumpets, and then th the third day after that is the Day of Atonement, and then the day after that begins, uh, begins the Feast of Booths. Okay, now side note, every 50 years after the Day of Atonement begins the Year of Jubilee, coinciding with the Feast of Booths. Okay, and so they go from their, their greatest fast to their highest calendar celebration that comes twice a century in 24 hours, okay? Verse 13, you'll offer a burnt offering and a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, 13 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old, they shall be without blemish, and their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the 14 lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the second day, 12 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old without blemish with the grain offering. Okay, and so now we see every day of the festival has a different demarcation for the sacrifices. And the one that's worth pointing to is that the first day begins with 13 bulls and it counts down day by day, 13, 12, 11, until it ends with seven bulls, okay? And so we see that in verse 17, the second day, 12 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs. Uh, the rams and the lambs are the same, but the bulls change day to day. 
in the prescribed quantities, verse 19, also one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering. On the third day, verse 20, 11 bulls, and then all this the same. On the fourth day, 10 bulls, and then all is the same. Okay. On the fifth day, verse 26, nine bulls. On the sixth day, eight bulls. On the seventh day, seven bulls. Okay. And then, after this festival's over, we have one final thing, which is the eighth day, which is not actually a part of the Feast of Booths, but is a culmination of the Feast of Booths. Okay. It's a separate day. In fact, uh, well, never mind. Verse 35. On the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You'll not do any ordinary work, but you'll offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. Okay. And so this final day, they have an offering. One bull, one ram, seven lambs, just like the monthly new moon offering. Okay. Also a goat for the sin offering, verse 38, besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and it's drink offering. And then we get our summary, verse 39. These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts in addition to your vow offerings, your free will offerings, for your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, for your drink offerings, and your peace offerings. In other words, on top of this is all the personal sacrifices. So here's what happens when you consider this whole year together. A couple of really interesting things, okay? First off, annually, for the nation of Israel, we're talking about 113 bulls, 32 rams, and 1,086 lambs. We're talking about one ton, that's 2,000 pounds of flour, and we're talking about 1,000 bottles of wine and oil. Okay? That's the baseline of Israel's worship of God. Okay? Now, when you include individuals, which we just looked at a list of just the men over 20 years old, not counting the Levites in Israel, and we got 600,000, so most people would say that's probably 2 million people. When you take those 2 million and their sacrifices and you lump them on top of this, you get a real feel for the death count in Israel's sacrificial system. Josephus, who was a historian who was writing just after the days of Jesus, said that when Passover happened in Jerusalem, that from the temple, blood would run in the streets from all the sacrifices, okay? Sacrifice is the center of Israel's religion because God is training a people in two ways, okay? One, to understand that the consequence of sin is death. And two, to know that they need someone to pay that penalty for them. And their year is just built up on that. The other thing that's really interesting about this year, like I said, this is effectively about Israel's worship and any rhythm you can think of has worship built into it. Here's the things that you can't see unless you pay way too much attention, and this does not include me, this is commentators, okay? On top of, uh, on top of the Sabbath days, there are seven other holy convocations in the year of Israel. Okay. A lot of times when you add up the animals of Israel, as we saw over and over again, we see the repeated seven. On the seventh day of the Feast of Booths, in the seventh month, it's, the bulls have decreased down to seven. There's this ringing seven. Okay. Every Sabbath is a seventh. The seventh month of the year, it's over and over again. And most scholars believe that this is pointing to a particular idea. And the idea is simply just completion. 
okay? In the same way that seven marks a completed week with the Sabbath, so also seven just sends this signal of completion and it's woven through this whole passage because what we're talking about is complete worship. What was this primary sacrifice throughout this whole thing? We regularly see see the goat for a sin offering, but what's the one every day, twice a day, added double on the week, and then there's the monthly, and then there's all the holidays. What's this whole chapter really about? It's about the burnt offering, okay? What these two chapters say together is effectively that a life properly lived is a life of complete worship, a complete devotion to God. And it says it in so many ways that as moderns, we're not even equipped to read anymore. But there's this, there's this numerical aspect of it. There's this compounding that for us just seems boring and repetitious, but is really just piling it on thick, right? This is a rapid fire emphasis so we understand how worthy of worship God truly is. So, verse 40, Moses told the people of Israel everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The place where I'd like to leave us tonight is with a very simple question. For you, what does it look like to worship God? There's some ways that it's different, right? Read the book of Hebrews. He would take a chapter like this and he would want to emphasize the difference. Israel's worship required regular and continuous sacrifices. Ours does not because Jesus died once for all and his sacrifice was sufficient. Okay. But, but the other reality that's painted here of a picture of habitual and routine and regular worship uh, is unavoidable in its emphasis and in its application. And especially since it's January and we're all working on new habits, I just want to remind you again that these are worthwhile habits. And you have other habits in these place, like staying in bed and scrolling through Facebook. Okay, I'm not drawing that from your life, I'm drawing it from mine. We have lots of habits that hinder these things. Okay? You say, but I just, I just don't have time to read my Bible every day. Just this week, do me, do me the pleasure. Add up the daily hours you watch of television or Netflix, etc. You have the time. We all have the time. You count your calendar for so many things. Is the most important day on your calendar every two weeks because it's payday? What are the habits and rhythms of your life? I'll tell you this. Whatever they are, they are worship. But are they worshiping this God, the God who loved you and died for you and gave you everything? Or are they worshiping a God of your own making? It never satisfies and always frustrates, which is why you, you have to keep looking. Israel's life was designed. It was designed by God to make a point, to develop not just habits, but a culture worship and I like I said I know we're so drawn to um, to casualness we're so drawn to um, when inspiration strikes us in these things that we're not really a culture that values habits anymore despite the fact that we're slaves to a thousands thousands of habits but it is worthwhile and valuable 
to integrate God into your life in this way because that's the way life was designed to be lived. Let's pray. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God, it says that you've given us a sun and a moon and even stars to mark, to mark the, the hours and the days, the months and the seasons. And as we see tonight, you gave us those marks so that we would develop rhythms of worship, habits, habits of relationship with you. And I ask God that you would show us where, where we're deficient in these things. I know uh, no one in this room is a Christmas and Easter Christian. But we have these rhythms in our life and they say something about what's important to us. And we want to declare tonight that you are first priority. And I pray that you'd give us wisdom and enable us to employ ways uh, to develop a lifestyle of worship in our households for those of us who have families to develop a culture of worship in our churches to, uh, to honor the value of our weekly gathering to worship you. And I thank you, Lord, as well, that, um, that in Israel, as you're grooming them for what's coming, there's so often where you lay out an expectation and the expectation almost lives up to it and it points forward. And we know that all of the Old Testament says he's coming. And we just rejoice in the fact again that we can proclaim he has come. And so what was only shadow, we enjoy in substance. And that shouldn't remove us or alleviate from the worship of Israel. It should make our worship all the deeper and all the more consuming because you have demonstrated your worthiness not just in promising but in fulfilling. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.